Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome, Michael. Hi. Hello, Terry. We're having this conversation as a bonus to address the COVID-19 coronavirus crisis that our country is, people all over the world is currently facing. So thank you for being able to check in. Thank you. And thank you for uh, reaching out to me. Um, It's been affecting everybody in one way or another, and I'm doing my best to stay in as much as I can. I wanted to have this conversation because I've been posting on social media how the virus has a disproportionate impact on women. So one example Uh is that 92% of nurses are women. The nurses and the healthcare workers are clearly the frontline workers. They're they're first responders, paramedics, etc. But nurses are there to support the doctors, and they're the ones who are doing most of the care, mm-hmm. I imagine. And so they are disproportionately impacted in terms of their risk of exposure. So I do have a friend who happens to be a nurse, and she feels like it's wartime right now. She can't even sleep because uh, she hears the ambulances. And I don't know if this is true uh, in your area, but it's true in my area and in her area that every time an ambulance passes, ambulance passes by, it's startling when it's not something that was common before. I live in a relatively quiet neighborhood and there are constantly ambulances, uh, sirens uh, passing by. And that just triggers her specifically since she constantly has to be at work. She, she's a nurse that works uh, on delivering babies and she has several coworkers that have tested positive for COVID-19. And so then she's afraid that she may affect her loved ones. Yeah, I can't imagine that at all, because I know that my friends and I were reading about cases in China. And when they closed down cities in China, one of the ways supposedly that they were able to contain the virus is by making sure that all the frontline healthcare workers, like if you're working at a hospital, you are not mm-hmm. allowed to go back home. You had to stay in that facility where you were treating patients because otherwise you would have to go take public transportation, go home to your spouse and children potentially, or even parents, and then expose them to the virus that you were exposed to while you were in the hospital. So in China, I heard the restrictions were much more stringent than we have here. And that's a question that we have to ask ourselves if if it gets worse is that something we should consider given you know the right. trade-offs in terms of civil liberties? And we see so many pictures, I'm sure you've seen this too, of healthcare workers in the US where they're just sleeping on, their, on the floor of the hospital or putting their head on a desk. Right, right. That's, and like you said, it's, it has to be, there, there's, there may be some trade-off. I mean, there are things that are happening right now that are affecting everybody, including the economy, but people's lives are extremely important. And I think that's something that we have to focus on, primarily, in my opinion, the lives of our citizens. Another way that COVID-19, the virus, is disproportionately affecting women is the number of people who are restaurant workers 
and basically two-thirds of restaurant workers are women. They already mm-hmm. face low wages and they have unreliable wow. hours and little to no benefits. And so restaurant workers, grocery workers, disproportionately women, low wage workers with no benefits. The what the ones who are restaurant workers, clearly the restaurants have closed in cities such as ours in New York where there's been a lockdown and restaurants have been shut. And yet, you know, to some extent they are encouraging, I don't know if I use that word, but encouraging people to try to order food for takeout because they continue to allow that. But a lot of restaurants have stated in the news that they don't have the means to continue takeout and they are preparing to shut down. And so a lot of them are. Yeah. And so to the extent that restaurants as an industry are in danger, that's really scary in terms of its impact on women. And yet on the flip side, grocery stores are doing really well and a lot of them are going to be growing and anticipating huge demands in increases in hiring from Amazon to the dollar store to Walmart. These are companies right now that are hiring because they're the only ones that are in business. They're essential businesses. And yet the people who are the, the people who are grocery store workers they're low wage, they don't have protection, and they're not necessarily working in stores where the six feet distancing, social distancing is being enforced. And if they even have health care, health is being put at risk and jeopardized every day. What are you seeing in your neighborhoods, Michael? It, it seems almost very desolate in the areas where there are stores. This morning, I did go to the supermarket to pick up a few things, and it, very few people are in the area. Some stores, even some supermarkets, or there's this new one that I, that I went to, is closed until 9 o'clock. And I thought if I went early, there would be less people in, in specifically supermarkets. But while the supermarkets are still running, every other store around is just closed and there's just very little movement outside of the supermarket areas. The only place where I see that there are still several people is the park. So, so one of the things that I do feel that is important for me right now, but I, I know I'm putting people at risk is when I go to the exercise, I do try to stay away from people and relatively in my neighborhood, there's nobody around and people do stay away from me even when I'm running. But for the most part, it seems like a ghost town even right now. So when you go out, do you wear a mask? Because now there's some growing consensus that everybody should wear a mask going out so that they're not exposing themselves and they're protecting others from whatever potential asymptomatic symptoms that they may have and vice versa. Well, right now, because there is a shortage, and this is what my nurse friend told me, there's a shortage of, of masks. It helps if you have symptoms and you are sick, that you wear a mask. But if you don't have symptoms, it's important to make sure that others who do have symptoms and or work or healthcare workers get those masks. So it's it's a really it's it's a difficult trade off, where you may be taking resources from uh, other people if you're not sick and you're not um, displaying symptoms. Also, remember, um, wearing a mask isn't going to help you that much to protect yourself from the, from, from the virus. It's more for people who are sick and preventing people from spreading the virus. Yeah, so I, I was actually referring to just those basic masks that, not the N95 recommended masks for healthcare workers, but just right. basic masks that cover you. Oh, like a handkerchief. Yeah, like those kinds of things, because if you are asymptomatic, 
you're protecting others from your own correct virus that you may have that you're unaware of. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm going to consider it uh, since I, I, I didn't think about that as long as it's not one of those professional ones. But yeah, okay, that, that, that makes sense. I also wanted to mention, and I don't have statistics, I didn't, I didn't look this up, honestly, but my, and this may be anecdotal evidence from a police officer that I speak to, he told me that domestic violence cases have shot up since the quarantine. Again, that's, that's through his, his, his experience. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I mean, I think anybody who's following us in social media can see I've been posting those articles throughout the podcast uh, platforms. On Facebook, there are articles that we've shared about that, and certainly on Instagram as well, and Twitter. And that makes sense because the home is the most dangerous place for women in the world, according to UN study back in 2018. And if survivors and victims are being forced to share a space with one another, it makes sense that they're going to be put at greater risk. And then you add to that these additional triggers like unemployment, loss of income, the potentially the woman at home taking care of the child, cooking, cleaning, managing the household disproportionately on her shoulders, and probably not being able to juggle it all because it's a challenge. And those kinds of triggers can escalate violence in a relationship when someone is already having power and control issues. And so, yes, that's definitely something that our, hopefully our listeners can, can become aware of by following us on social media and all of those platforms so that you could see those articles and its impact. And just this morning, actually, I posted on Facebook an article that I had originally tweeted It was an article by a survivor who is sharing how she, as a protective mom, was historically not someone who was a danger to her child. She has never had a protective order against her and no history of abuse. And yet her ex and his current girlfriend both have had protective orders against them. And in fact, her ex was arrested, and yet her ex, typical abuser tactic, filed Mm -hmm. a petition for her to not be able to see their child. And I'll read read part of it. It's in in the Facebook post, Mm -hmm. but it basically says, Tishner, which is the ex-husband, alleges and submitted documents in support that the respondent, the protective mom, alleges proximity to coronavirus. And it says here, quote, court takes judicial notice that there is at present no vaccination. Their children are generally less susceptible to the virus's effects as it is highly contagious and lethal. Combined with the pre-existing health issues of one of the minor children and a proffered history of alleged neglect by the respondent mother, court finds that it is in the best interest of the minor children of this above-styled matter for an ex parte order for the children to be immediately picked up and placed into the custody of the petitioner, meaning the father, the alleged abuser. Yes, so the father filed this petition, which is a typical thing for abusers to do when it comes to protective parents, protective moms, and it's a tactic that any one of us could have predicted. And in fact, it's it's happening with me. My abuser is Mm -hmm. using the coronavirus to keep me from my son. He's already used many tactics, as you're aware of, to keep me from my son. Um, But this is yet another one that I had predicted as soon as the virus started. 
and I had documented, and I had tried to preempt, but nobody who's involved in my case is actually doing anything about it. And um, are there, for example, in the case that you just mentioned, are there um, precautions that uh, lawmakers or people who are in charge of this uh, just review this issue before? Because because you told me that the abuser, the petitioner of, of the the petitioner had already a history of being arrested. I mean, do they take those things into consideration to take this seriously before? action is, is, is taken upon this? I mean, what it says from the post, and I don't know this survivor, mm-hmm. what it says from the post is that the father, the abuser, according to the victim, the mom, the protective mom, has a history and, and that he made allegations against the mother as having mm-hmm. a history. And because right. of that allegation in his petition, he was granted this order. And his allegation is because she's a healthcare worker, she has exposure to coronavirus, and therefore okay. she's going to be oh, putting the children she, yeah. at risk. And therefore, the children should not have any contact with the mother. Oh, that is, that is heartbreaking. As you know from all of our divorce and custody episodes, yes, there's yes. Abusers use the disinformation tactic of PAS, parental alienation or parental alienation syndrome. And Mm -hmm. this is yet another example where, as you heard from our Joan Meyer interview and all the research that's that's come up since then to validate that there is gender bias in the courts against women who allege abuse, that they don't need proof. If the abuser Mm -hmm. is alleging that the mother is a danger and that she has a Mm -hmm. history, they just do this first. And if they get to the fact finding and evidence collection, they will. Once you start the narrative, as you know, from Trump. Yeah, right. Every day he's throwing out lies into the, (laughs) you know, into the into the ecosphere and people don't need to validate it. Even if you give proof to disprove it, people will still believe it because of their biases. They don't care. Right, which is crazy. I hear that support of, of Democrats have, has increased uh, on, on Trump. And, and just overall, there's a lot more support now uh, that the virus is happening. It seems that more than half the country... Let me uh, challenge you on that. The poll that was used to cite that 51% approval rating for Trump, there was only 1,000 people polled. Oh, okay. I don't know. Many people question, like, what was the source of the poll? Who was being polled? Was it only Trump voters? Was it only people in the South? Is it a certain demographic that disproportionately biases those results? Because if okay. you're only going to poll, let's say, red states, then of course, right? But yeah, we don't course, know how fair the distribution of people who responded to the poll was. Okay, that's, that's fair. Yeah, so this was in Twitter, because as you know, Twitter has a lot of information in terms of the actual sources of the polls and the, and the um, news sources. Right, and there is a lot of misinformation on Twitter, Facebook, and all social media platforms. I mean, I, I hear even people saying, uh, and this is my parents uh, who, who, who send me uh, a, a message saying that in order to get rid of the coronavirus, you have to uh, increase your the acidity level because the virus can't survive in the acidity level. So they have like these home remedies and some of them are dangerous. I hear one where if you put a blow dryer on your nose, it kills the virus. If you increase your temperature, your skin temperature to 130 something, which is probably going to burn your skin or if you put a blow dryer to your face. 
a lot of these things, this misinformation can be uh, seriously harmful. And I thank you for uh, pointing that out. So I myself don't fall for that. What was the combination of drugs that Trump had recommended during a recent press conference about a week ago? Well, recently he stated that hydroxychloroquine was the cure for COVID-19. And he, he touted it as something that is an easy fix and basically a miracle cure. Is that the anti-malaria drug? Yes, that was the anti-malaria drug. Didn't someone die from that as well? There was someone who actually tried that combination and right. he died from it. It's sad because he is not a healthcare professional. He, he isn't informed, not just on this, on many other things. And for him to spread this misinformation around is very, very dangerous. And for because a lot of people do believe what he says. And he speaks more for the, for the purposes of his benefit for his election and a, a couple of other reasons that I'm sure will help his, the economy for the, the rich people that he supports. And I think that that... That is a big influence. And for him, that's something that uh, takes precedent over the health of other people. This is, if anybody needed an example of what abuser tactics are, he's doing it. He's doing it because of ego. He's doing it mm -hmm. because of cruelty and the, the, the delight that he gets from being cruel and vengeful. Mm -hmm. And he's doing it because he wants to earn money because of greed. You yeah, know, and, and so what I wanted to share earlier is that another way in which domestic violence has been impacted, those kinds of relationships and dynamics have been exacerbated by the virus, is that abusers have been using the virus as a way to emotionally and psychologically been weaponizing COVID-19 as a psych psychological tool. And one example that was given in an article I read is abusers are saying they have COVID-19, so they're telling their partner whether or not there's a lockdown in their community that they can't leave mm -hmm. the house. Oh. Another example is they're inviting people into the house where the woman is self-isolating and saying that the visitor has COVID-19 and that he's going to infect them, the visitor, if um, the woman doesn't listen to what the abuser wants her to do. Right. So terrorizing her in this way, using basically any novel form of, of intimidation. Exactly. That could possibly come. Yeah. yeah. So with this more, yeah, there's more ways of, of the abuser to, to intimidate the person. And again, Trump is, is another one that's no different. And I think there were some great tweets that I saw, which I posted also on social media around, um, this is exactly what the whole point of the impeachment was. Trump, right. basically, he didn't, he threatened Ukraine that mm -hmm. if they didn't do research and put out statements in his favor against Joe Biden, his opponent in the mm -hmm. Democratic side, or his leading opponent, according to him on the Democratic side, that he was going to withhold economic aid to the Ukraine. This is exactly what the Democrats impeached him for and the Senate did not convict him for, and yet he's doing the same thing now to states in this country, blue states and communities like New York City, where right. he's telling the governor of Michigan, a woman, mm -hmm. I'm not going to give you money or trying to minimize the need for ventilators and other protective equipment because they don't suck up to him and right. stroke his ego. Yeah, he said they're not being nice to me. 
And so he feels that he, he, he's helping, the, uh, for example, uh, sending 400 ventilators is what he feels was enough for New York. And he felt that we should be grateful. And I, I guess he was also referencing Cuomo later on during that speech. This goes back to what I've been, the drum that I've been beating forever, which is if we hold abusers accountable, they will not become the greater public threat that they are as Trump is. If we put right. abusers in jail, if we criminalize coercive control, then abusers wouldn't go off and become mass shooters. As we right. know, the majority of mass shooters have a history of domestic violence that clearly wasn't taken seriously enough for them to be in jail. Right. And if we had put Trump in his place, if we had held him accountable for Ukraine and he was convicted by the Senate, there would be less opportunity for him now to have the power that he holds over us in making decisions about our public health, not just for the U.S., but for all across the world. I mean, to be fair, we, we knew that that was going to happen because the Senate was uh, majority re Republican. But it's, it's just sad to see how so many people support an abuser like Donald Trump. And, and they still do, even though they're now, you know, their health is being impacted. They're still being threatened by this virus and they're supporting him. I feel like another reason why that's happening is like, I don't know if you, you remember the, the, the or found out or heard about the senator who felt that the economy is more important than the lives of yes. uh, some elderly people. Right. So I, I think that that greed is there. And, and that's that's another reason that they're supporting Trump, because it just helps them out with their greedy agenda. But the disenfranchised, the poor, the working poor, the majority of th this country don't have enough money to survive um, not having one or two paychecks. They're one or two paychecks away from poverty. And more than three million people in this past week's increase in filing for unemployment are now going to be, unless they're paying for a COBRA, they're not going to be without health insurance. And so all these people who have been beating the drum against Obamacare, you know, against eliminating the tie between health care coverage and employment, they're now seeing the impact, and yet they're still supporting him. Exactly. There was a post that I posted this morning, which I thought was very clever too. And part of the reason is because the narrative that Trump is using is now he's trying to play into their sense of belonging and making it a blue state, red state kind of thing. Like it's the Democrats, mm. it's the cities, it's New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. That's why they potentially, you know, talked about a quarantine. They want to label someone as bad and as responsible. First, it's China. Now it's the cities. And this coincides very well. It aligns very well with his agenda of trying to demonize people in the cities for their diversity, for their high immigrant population for LGBTQ population, for all the different populations that tend to want to fraternize and um, come together in community in an urban area, because that's where opportunity is, that's where economic activity is, that's where social acceptance is. Right. Yeah. And so he, he has the tactic of dividing, pointing out those differences and making uh, yeah, like you said, putting, making the narrative that there's this bad guy and I'm the only one who can save you. Um, despite when he's asked even directly, uh, that, you know, like, what, what is it that you're going to do in order to, to address this? I think the bill that 
I don't know if it passed yet or not uh, about giving the $1,200 to. Yes, it passed uh, Friday. Okay, so it passed Friday. But what are people who don't have health care going to do with $1,200 one time, right? I, I, I mean, pay rent. If, if they got fired from the job or the job ended because they can't, because of the virus and because of the quarantine, $1,200 for a person is not going to do much. And it's people are put in a tough situation, but at the same time, there's so many people that support them. And I think, if anything, this shows us that a lot of the power does come from the people because we are the ones who are the working class is really supporting a lot of these businesses. And if, if, if we go down, large companies may also feel it as well. Well, I mean, yeah, it, it also boggles my mind that people are, have stigmatized the S word, socialism, which really is about having a social safety net and distribution of resources across society so that there is a social, social safety net. And like Canada, for example, they passed a stimulus bill that gives $8,000, $2,000 a month to every family, or maybe it was every individual, but I'm going to say family, to every family for four months. So they get $2,000 a month for four months. That's an $8,000 stimulus bill. That seems much more reasonable. Absolutely. And I feel like a lot of the money that's in the stimulus is for large corporations. It's... it's just terrible. Yeah. And then there was, while the stimulus bill was still under debate, there were all these memes I'm sure you saw where Mm -hmm. people who are Trump supporters are attacking the Democrats for being obstructionist, for not letting the bill pass, when in fact, we're not letting the bill pass because the bill was in favor of corporations and not helping the little person, the working class person at all. It's funny you mentioned that because a friend sent me an article and told me, why are the Democrats doing this? And and I was like, oh, my God, just read the article. The article stated clearly what the reason was, why the, 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 they obstructed. But the title itself, and this was, I believe, the Daily News, the title itself said Democrats blocking the, the, the bill. Right. So it's media bias and media stupidity. Exactly. I, it's, it, it's so misleading. The title is so extremely misleading that, that it, it's so infuriating and it's just, it is not helping. How would you have restated that title to make it more accurate, Michael? I would say uh, Republicans uh, prioritizing big corporations over the working class. And, and did your friend actually read the article after you said that? Well, my friend sent the article and said that she doesn't understand why. And then I just said, just read the article. She didn't read the article until I explained it to her and then took screenshots of the article um, highlighting the key points like Mitch McConnell uh, putting the vote up for, uh, before it was ready, things like uh, the, the basically making a trust fund for uh, Republicans to do what they want with the money without being held accountable. Did she, did she come around afterwards? I'm curious. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she did. She did. She actually, yeah, she, she did. And she said, thank you for explaining it to me and everything. But I feel, I feel like the language wasn't, you know, she might be listening. So I'm sorry. But look, I, 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 she did come around. She, she understood and she agrees. Okay. So what is each person's individual responsibility to consuming information that is factual and not biased and making informed decisions? 
Right. That's important. It's important for us to read beyond the headline and, and be critical of what information we're consuming. No matter, even if we do agree with it, try to understand what, what the agenda is behind uh, the information that you're seeing and how it's presented. All right. Well, let's, let's keep that in mind as we continue to get through these next few weeks, potentially months together under this lockdown and are confronted with a deluge of articles and news sources and information that may not be accurate uh, in its presentation initially, in its headline. And so let's put on our critically thinking lens and cap Mm -hmm. um, and continue to have these conversations. And then, by the way, Michael, I don't know if you know that we're starting under the Engendered Collective, a weekly survivor support group. So to the extent that, you know, we can get the word out that there is an opportunity for survivors to come together virtually to talk about the ways that the virus is impacting them and to to talk about the ways that their relationship is being impacted and the ways in which those dynamics might be harmful to them and how we can help survivors develop useful coping tools to manage under this stressful time. Wow, that's wonderful. Yeah, I encourage you to join and I encourage you to invite your larger community as well. Okay, I'll help spread the word and I'll I'll look into it. Thank you. All right, so until next time when we're going to be looking back at our reflections of the beauty, fashion, and lifestyle industries, have a good week, Michael. Thank you and you too and take care, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.